Welcome to Our Cold Conversations. I'm Jay Howard, an instructor in the Department of Communication at Missouri State University. And we're here to have conversations with some of the amazing, dedicated people who make up the Reynolds College of Arts and Letters community. Thanks for joining us. Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 2 of Our Cold Conversations. If you have a topic that you'd like to hear about on the podcast, or if you have a topic that you'd like to share about, you can contact me at jhoward at missourystate.edu. That's J-A-Y Howard at missourystate.edu. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Kristen Harper, instructor in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages. Dr. Harper teaches a number of classes, including Latin, Classical Mythology, The Heroic Quest, and Daily Life in the Ancient City. We talk about her background and about each of those classes in turn. In particular, we talk about a curriculum innovation mini-grant that she was awarded from the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning. She has used this grant to create a new hands-on experience for students with a study collection of replicas of ancient materials from ancient Greece, Rome, and Egypt. So think oil lamps, weaving looms, helmets, and coins. We talk about the benefits of engaging all five senses in the effort to bring the past to life. And of course, I also ask Dr. Harper the all-important question, who would win in a fight, Gilgamesh? Or Beowulf. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Harper, thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I was wondering if um, we could start off with you maybe sharing with us a little bit about your educational background. Okay, great. Um, well, I did my undergraduate degree at St. Anselm College, where I was pursuing a degree in the um, liberal studies and the Greek books because I couldn't pick what part of the humanities I wanted to do. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And while I was there, I was taking Latin as my language requirement. I had taken a little bit of Latin in high school and I really liked it because I loved classical mythology. Um, and along the way, I really wanted to study abroad, but our school didn't, our college didn't have a study abroad program, but they did have an archeological excavation in Italy. So I hopped on there as a student at the field school and I continued working there every summer uh, through my graduate degree as well. And I kind of fell in love with archeology span and that stuff too. So I went on after St. Anselm College, I went to Mizzou, uh, University of Missouri in Columbia. And that's where I got my master's in classical languages and my PhD in classical studies. And so I kind of like my research kind of blends the two. I do poetic um, poetics and literature for uh, late antique Roman women and their funerary poetry. And so I get all of the literature stuff, the social history stuff, but all of these poems that I studied for my dissertation, they're all inscribed on tombstones. So there I have my archeology span uh, connection background there too. So I kind of like to, again, my indecisiveness of picking where to go. <laughs> um, I just wanted to do everything about, um, about that. So um, uh, yeah, so that's my education background. I started um, tutoring while I was at St. E's and throughout my graduate degree, I taught Latin and classical mythology. Um, I taught a couple Latin club court club uh, things at the local, one of the local elementary schools. 
and I worked at Mobile Area Community College, which um, you mentioned you also worked at OTC, um, and I taught classical mythology, uh, a writing intensive there for their English department as well before I came here uh, to Missouri State. So. Wow. So there are some elementary schools that have Latin clubs. Yeah, <laughs> it was really cool because um, they're interested in all of, a lot of students who I taught were interested because of the Percy Jackson series and got really interested in classical mythology. Um, Harry Potter is still pretty big and all of the uh, spells uh, students were interested in that too. Yes. Um, and so I actually uh, did a Latin club from kindergarten to third grade were the ages. So um, that was kind of, uh, that actually was part of how I developed some of my plans for uh, this study collection too, was doing that club project and trying to incorporate teaching younger students um, language and grammar, but also utilizing some of the more hands-on ex uh, experiences that I want to bring to the college classroom too. It's so cool. Um, you mentioned funeral poetry and it's reminded me, I'm listening to this book on Audible right now called The Dawn of Everything, which oh, okay. is a book basically about prehistory because um, I've always been interested in, in that. And it, it mentions that of course, there's lots of challenges to try to reconstruct the life of the ancient past. Um, and not that I know anything about that. Um, but in this book, it mentions like a lot of what we know comes from from burial sites, because that's where people made things that lasted a long time, like monuments and tombstones. <laughs> yeah. um, that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that they made, but a lot of the stuff is lost, right? Um, yeah. I saw that you were recently featured uh, on the Modern Classical Languages blog um, for having uh, been on some recent archaeological expeditions. Yes. yes. Um, so you've been, you've been to some of these dig sites where, where these artifacts are found. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Um, sure, yeah. So my first experience doing uh, archaeology was in Italy, in um, a small little town near the city of Orvieto um, in Umbria, so kind of central Italy. And it was um, a site where the tribe of the Etruscans, which are kind of like pre-Roman, they're, they're a tribe that are around right kind of when, before Rome takes over, uh, the Romans actually end up uh, kind of wiping them out. <laughs> um, but um, so it's a, it has a long history of, of continued use. Um, so I, I started there as a student in my undergraduate career, working on a site um, that was potentially a water shrine that, got, that was used by the Etruscans to a water nymph, got reused as a Roman bathhouse, and then was on a pilgrimage route from uh, France to Rome. So actually the early Christians possibly used this water site bathhouse complex as well. And it's hard work, I think, being on an excavation, being an excavator, you're in the sun, you're you know, uh, bending over backwards, your back hurts, your thighs, you know. But what kept me going back year after year is I kind of feel this connection. It's like I'm, I'm time traveling and it, it makes it so, much, so worth it when you, you know, can kind of unveil, unveil something that, you know, hasn't been touched for thousands of years. Um, I remember I found a pottery shirt, like a broken piece of pottery, but it had a thumbprint in it. And I was just, I felt this immense connection to I'm holding something that someone else thousands of years ago made, put a thumbprint in it. Like this is someone's handprint. And I was just, um, I don't know. I just kind of love seeing how history kind of comes alive in that way. Yeah. 
uh, I worked later at a uh, medieval church in a similar area, and that was where I first experienced some uh, burials. I accidentally pickaxed through a skull. Yes. <laughs> um, we we knew that there were probably burials around this uh, church, but we weren't expecting them that close to the surface. <laughs> so it was a very cool find. Um, and everyone says, well, if you only hit it once, you found it. If you hit something twice, <laughs> that's <laughs> Notice the, the quote in the blog said that archaeology is a destructive science, right? It is. <laughs> you can only do the experiment once. So paperwork is very important in archaeology. Documented. Indiana Jones doesn't bring up all the paperwork that is necessary. <laughs> well, for the students at Missouri State taking these classes, classical mythology, heroic quest, they may they may enroll in those classes because they're interested in those topics. But it's one thing to be interested in the topics of like of Zeus. Uh, and it's another yeah. thing to have actually visited the place, the you know, the birthplace of Zeus. Yeah. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it's it's great to that the students have the opportunity to learn from uh, uh, from an expert. Um, and so that kind of takes us over to the classes that you teach here at Missouri State. Um, I saw um, classical mythology, literature 121, uh, the heroic quest, literature 180, mm -hmm. um, and then Latin 201. And that's that's all in fall 2021, right? Yes. Um, and so before we get into the other class that you're developing, yeah. um, can you I was wondering if we could talk about the the differences between those two those two classes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, you know, from someone who's never taken either of them. Um, well, yeah, Latin 201 is just a continuation of our Latin sequence. So I've um, been follow I'm I've been teaching the same students from Latin 101 through uh, through, and I and we tend to do that. We um, rotate around who teaches the Latin sequence so that students have the same professor throughout the uh, introductory section. Hmm. But, and for classical mythology uh, versus the heroic quest, um, which I think is we are planning on actually changing the name to from here to superhero to be a little bit more inclusive and, and, and kind of demonstrate uh, the breadth and expanse of what we really teach in that class. And everyone has their own little spin on the course. Um, what I've been doing is I we read a few uh, epic tales like Gilgamesh and the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Um, I've also been trying to pull in more um, female heroes. So we talked about Mulan um, and the Trung Warrior Sisters, who are from uh, Vietnam. Yeah. And we talk, you know, it, we talk a lot about um, the public affairs pillar in there as well. So how are heroes public figures? And you know, sometimes they do uh, great things for a society, but sometimes like. Hercules, he gets his name for helping people out, but he also does some terrible things mm -hmm. at the same time that he needs to atone for. Yeah. So those are kind of the themes. Uh, talk about heroism um, and the different types of cultural values that surround a hero or how maybe the myths or legends around a particular hero or heroine might um, tell us as modern modern people what values or virtues um a community either praised or vilified or, or different aspects like that. And so um, this semester where I let my students pick what text they wanted to read last, so we're actually reading the graphic novel, The Sandman, and talking about modern day comics and superheroes too, and kind of the anti-hero uh, vigilante stuff that seems really popular in modern American uh, culture as well. 
um, versus my classical mythology course, it's, it's a bit more um, broad in that we cover a lot of Greek mythology. There can be a lot of names for students, but we talk about the creation myths, um, uh, the 12 Olympian gods, and their, um, uh, their relationships with humans. So I focus a lot on how, are the, how did the Greeks depict their gods and what are the relationships between gods and humans and uh, what maybe what cultural values come in there as well. Uh, we talk a lot about hope because sometimes hope is not always a good thing in ancient Greek culture um, versus we ascribe a lot of uh, positivity to hope. So again, kind of that cultural competence uh, focus in that class and a lot of the stories. I like to think of my classical myth class as uh, adult story time. Yeah. <laughs> about the myths in relationship to, to the culture. That's yeah. kind of cool how virtues can flip-flop. Um, you mentioned hope being uh, conceptualized as a negative thing instead of a positive thing. I was recently reading about uh, ambition, which is yeah. which presently is, um, you know, uh, not frowned upon, whereas in the ancient world, it, people kind of were suspicious of people who were ambitious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so it's a good good point that um, that really plays into cultural competence. It makes a lot of sense. Um, could you could you describe a little more about the um, the title change from the heroic quest, which students may not understand? It, and to me, it, it brings up like Joseph Campbell. Uh, yes. To superheroes, which I which yeah. I think of Thor in um, Avengers, of course, of, as being a crossover mm -hmm. of like literal human mythology and modern storytelling, um, totally reinvented um, for it to be a modern superhero? Um, well, we, uh, so I just started here in 2020. So my colleagues and I were, uh, they were, I think they were planning a title change before I came in as well, but I worked with them on um, putting that forth. Um, I think we're, we're waiting to see if it's approved, but one of the reasons was just to kind of modernize it because sometimes when you hear the heroic quest, it sounds you know, yeah, it sounded very epic. Joseph Campbell, um, some of the other theorists around like Carl Jung and the monomyth. Um, and students coming into the course often are thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe we're going to learn about superheroes and we hadn't necessarily incorporated that. Um, and so, so we were like, well, if this is what students want to learn about, why not include that? Because superheroes are more of our, you know, modern American culture take on heroes and especially with the rise in pop culture of the Marvel franchise that's been happening right now it has this blending of um, the typical um, tropes that you see in the epic uh, epic stories the classical epics and just stories about heroes throughout the world um, and blending in you know some of these other modern day values and you get different characters you get origin stories um, you have people with uh, divine powers like Thor, but then you have everyday people who are using tools or gadgets or whatever to um, kind of affect change. And we see a lot more in more of these modern superheroes, the internal uh, growth um, of a hero that we don't get necessarily from all of our ancient heroes. We definitely start seeing it with Aeneas and he's struggling as this reluctant uh, hero, he doesn't want to fulfill his destiny. He wants to. Uh, he wants to have died at Troy because he's so sad. But he's there's this fate 
Um, and so he's somewhat reluctant, but we also get to see inside his mind and kind of how he develops as a hero, having this destiny or fate forced mm-hmm. upon him. And I feel like that we see more of that reflected in some of these superheroes too. So, um, and so we're trying to kind of incorporate those things, seeing how these themes, virtues, values are being reinterpreted today. And it's very like an active thing going on, I think because of this resurgence. And it also allows us to open up the categories. A lot of the heroes that had been studied previously were male from um, Western culture. So now we're trying to include more female uh, heroes, non-binary heroes and uh, heroes from all over the world. And so that also opens that up too um, for us to kind of be more inclusive in that that regard as well. Is there any sense in which our modern superhero movies, the DC, the Marvel, um, do they play anything like the same role in our culture that myths played for the for the ancients? Um, and, and one of the questions this brings up is whether or not the ancients believed literally in their gods. Like, was did they believe there to be a literal Aphrodite or something? in the same way that we don't believe in a literal uh, Captain America, even right, though right. Captain America does represent values that are real, you know? Yeah, I think there are some aspects, but yes, I would, I would agree with you in that. You know, I don't think people are going to be putting up a uh, hero shrine to Captain America, but that definitely happened with Hercules. He had a hero cult and people would go to his shrines all over Greece um, happened with ancient athletes too. Certain ones were praised and venerated and you could go and be like, oh, I'm going to leave, you know, a couple coins, a libation because my foot hurts and he was really great at running or something like that. Um, but in the sense that like Homer's Iliad, his epic was such a part of a culture. People are listening to it to be entertained, to maybe see some of the, themselves reflected in these, you know, a bard could go to a hall and tell a story, um, maybe tell a section of the Iliad, and he might be, oh, this guy who is, you know, so-and-so's great-great-great-grandfather who's here, we're in this guy's hall, he has ties to this myth, and so we have this entertaining, but also this sense of maybe camaraderie and a shared cultural experience, a shared cultural story, and so um, I think with the popularity of some of these Marvel movies, like I was never a huge comic reader myself, but I kind of know a lot more about at least the gist of some of these hero superhero stories just from people talking about them or the movies coming up um, or things like that. And so it's like, okay, I might know, not know all of the details, but we have this kind of, oh yeah, I know that guy or, or this person from this story and they have certain virtues and values, which I think right now DC and Marvel are playing a lot more with too, right? We're shying away from the, you know, typical early comic books where they had a very almost formulaic uh, setups, villains, right? All of these different tools, you know, the anti-gravity beam or, or whatever it is, and adding in those more complex character tropes, which I think you also see when, you, when you're reading, okay, Homer and then and uh, Virgil writes Aeneas and he has a lot more complexity to him because he's pulling off of Homer's epics and Homer, right? We have Gilgamesh even before that. And so kind of this building off of one another throughout wow. cultural development. At least that's how I, I've been kind of looking at it. Now that's studying. great, yeah. And 
was was Homer aware of Gilgamesh, the epic? I not I don't know because well, this begs the question: Was Homer real? Yeah, yeah. Uh, was he, right, was right. he one? Was, I mean, um, I don't know because I think I remember seeing that it was that big of Gilgamesh was written on tablets that they did find away from ancient Babylon, but I'm not sure if Homer himself would have read it or heard it, um, but he might have heard some of the other oral tradition stories. Uh, it's just so interesting. Um, I'm reminded, I'm reminded, I just recently watched Eternals. Um, oh, I haven't seen it yet. I really want to see it. Well, uh, one of the Eternals' names is Gilgamesh. Yeah. <laughs> Which I was, I was surprised to see. So there's more of just, just sort of this um, wholesale just borrowing of like, exactly. you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so there's an, a new class on the way yes. called, well, let me see, uh, Daily Life in the Ancient City. Yes, that's the plan. <laughs> um, one of the things that you have been incorporating into this process is a um, faculty center for teaching and learning curriculum innovation mini grant. Yes. <laughs> um, and so congratulations on your successful grant application. Um, so I'd love to, to dive into that, um, both the process of applying for the grant and then what you have done with it or what you're in the okay. process of doing. So, um, because I, I a lot of the, a lot of our listeners will know what the what the grant is, um, but um, maybe we can start there by just explaining for those of us okay. who haven't heard of them yet what they are. Yeah. Um, well, I originally heard of it actually my first uh, semester here uh, teaching, uh, fall twenty twenty, and I thought, oh, this would be a great idea to build start building a study collection. Um, and so, you know, the course and the study collection, my ideas for those kind of started developing around the same time mm -hmm. together. But I thought with getting this grant, I could build a study collection that yes, ties in closely to this daily lives class, but I also envisioned it helping um, be a resource in our language courses, our other literature and language courses like classical mythology, like the heroic quest and something that maybe even other departments, um, some history courses or whomever might wanna use these could use these items, um, these replicas to kind of bring the past to life again. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can't go into a museum and just pick up <laughs> the pottery there, but here you can. <laughs> so, so I saw an email from the SCTL um, about it, or advertising the application for the larger full uh, curriculum grant. And I didn't know too much about it. So I actually emailed with them and I believe it was Kelly Bridges from SCTL who emailed me and she said, well, this actually might be a great segue for you to apply for the mini grant. Um, and so the application process was pretty easy. I just filled out and they had a Microsoft forms and I just um, kind of talked about what I wanted to use the uh, grant money for. So for the purchasing of these uh, items for, for like student labs, uh, for student use, and for helping having more of a hands-on project-based learning. So a lot of the, um, I think a lot of the awards go, or the, I wanna say the grant money goes towards how to enhance student engagement. And so I thought that this, you know, uh, was the perfect way to do that for not just the one class I'm developing, but could be used in multiple different courses. Awesome. So, yeah. 
thinking outside the box in, in teaching. Yeah. And this, this, I like the idea of having this one resource that can be sort of have a multi-use um, for, for a variety of different future purposes to which it might be put. So this is a, the study collection is a collection of replica artifacts. Um, and let's dive into sort of uh, the tangibles of, of, of what those items are. When I was looking through the list, I saw everything from helmets to perfumes uh, to this weaving loom. That, yes. um, and I have to, I have to be honest that this weaving loom is going to change the course of my life for the next couple of years, <laughs> because I am ob obsessed with knitting and crocheting and making blankets on my, my personal time. And I didn't, I didn't know that like, I mean, it's a $60 loom, which is affordable. Um, and so anyway, I'm going to be like weaving blankets with an actual loom. Oh, cool. I'm so glad. I see myself really, you know, really checking that out. Um, yeah. <laughs> so can you t tell us all about some of the items that are on, on this and how you selected some items, not others? Yeah. So that was actually one of the hardest parts for me. That's probably one of the reasons why it took me so long to purchase everything because I was having a hard time, you know, Try, how can I get the most use out of the money that we were giving the grant? Um, and so my thought process was, um, I want it to be somewhat expansive. So not just Rome or just Greece or the Mediterranean, but trying to spread out maybe some ancient Egyptian, um, other sorts of artifacts. And also a lot of the replicas and things that we see in museums are things like this Keelix pottery. Um, I have like, uh, this is a lamp I picked up um, you put the oil yeah. in and it had a wick, and, you know, some those things like that. But um, I wanted to do right because this daily's lives course, I wanted to focus on the different classes of people. How does society interact? What might be objects or things that people used who weren't just the aristocracy, which is what we normally see? Because, like you said, it's what we have. We have grave goods that are buried oftentimes with aristocrats or higher people in society that, oh, they have this beautiful, you know, golden necklace or this pod or sword, but what are people actually using every day? And so, um, and I also wanted to talk about craftsmen and, and women. So that's where the loom comes in because loom work and weaving was actually a very big part of uh, women's um, role in especially Greek society, women uh, from all social classes were going to be weaving and it was a source of, of pride for Penelope in the Odyssey. Oh, yeah. She was a very uh, proficient weaver. And so um, I wanted students with this study collection not be able to just see and touch artifacts, but also to be, to be able to somewhat experience a little bit about what life might be like for some of these people developing that cultural competence or even cultural humil humility mm -hmm and seeing, okay, this is what someone else's life was like. Um, so I have um, this centurion helmet oh, wow. and it's quite heavy. <laughs> so it's like, how, what would the armor be like for someone um, trying to run into a battlefield or- And we're, uh, we're looking at a shiny metal helmet. It's got the red, <laughs> the red kind of plume along the top yes. running all the way along the back. The loom for, for, for women and, and so I want students to, in one of the labs that I'm gonna have them do for the daily lives course is actually use the loom. It's a miniature loom, so it's not, I wouldn't be able to fit a giant one yeah. <laughs> in here, but getting that or I'm, I wanna purchase some stonemason's tools and maybe a block of marble 
um, to talk about like stonework and statues, we see the evidence of those today in our museums and it, it, it involves multi, multiple levels of society. You have whoever's commissioning the statue, the aristocrat, um, or, or maybe a religious community. Um, then you have the person, right, who's in charge of trading the marble. Where is it going? Um, who's getting, you know, different connections that way. Then you might have the grandmaster sculptor who's in charge of what the planning out what the sculpture is going to look like and things like that. But then you also have someone who's working and chiseling away. Um, and how might that be, uh, how might that experience be? Or, um, I have a lot of, I bought some coin molds. So these are, this is a silicon mold for some of the ancient uh, coins. He has a lot of the ones that we find in, um, you know, in, a, in an archeological excavation, they aren't in great condition. And so you get to see, okay, this is where a thumbprint might've been, or how are some of the impurities that happen in coin making process. Um, and so I really wanted to get at those different levels and not only bring, you know, uh, being able to tangibly experience some of these things, but also see the smells. So, you know, uh, the Roman bathhouses uh, or even um, in the, the Turkish hammam, right? And having this bath culture was not just a place for hygiene, but also for social and daily life interaction and a lot of perfume oils, right, for use. So I have this uh, Royal Egyptian perfume blend from one company that makes that and also a Roman incense blend and a Jerusalem, Jerusalem blend. So you can start smelling and um, kind of maybe transporting themselves into the shoes of uh, some of these ancient peoples of different social statuses. Yeah. That is so cool. It's, it's hard to overestimate the, the importance of, of engaging all the senses. Not, not only is it visual, which you could get with a picture, it's tangible right. by, by virtue of having a physical object, but you can also smell some of them, uh, interact with them. I'm, I'm thinking about that oil lamp. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if there's oil and a wick for it and stuff, but um, the process of- There isn't yet, because I don't know if I could burn it in the building. Unless you can have an open flame. Um, yeah. But, but that kind of experience would also be in line with, with the, the really just engaging. And that brings to mind, um, you know, the, the student outcomes, the student reactions who have had the opportunity to interact with some of these already. You, have you been able to gather data um, on that? And Well, I haven't, I did a, since I haven't taught the daily lives class, I've just been bringing these in as they've been coming in to my heroic quest class oh, yeah. and my Latin class, um, since those have been meeting in person. And especially for my Latin class, when we're, I have a, this wax tablet and stylus. So we've been talking about, you know, we're reading literature and, and, and ancient Latin language. So we've been talking about, okay, what would it be like to be an author? Um, how are you learning your letters? And how are uh, the things that we are reading now, how are they transcribed over thousands of mm. years? And, and so I've been bringing those in um, to demonstrate and, you know, we've done a couple of reenactments of scenes in our heroic quest class. We reenacted the end of the Aeneid. Um, so we use some of our battle armor and wow. Gladius and things like that. So, um, I think that has been, uh, really great to interact with the text in that way and asking students, how would you stage this scene, right? This is what Virgil says. Um, this is a pivotal point in Aeneas's development of a hero. 
So how could we stage this or, or, or how would we like to express this using some of these replica items that we have? Very cool. um, yeah, so I have, I did do a mid-semester survey, um, but I've gotten pretty positive feedback from my students, but um, I've just been doing general kind of written response surveys from them right now since I haven't been able to do the full, right? They've been slowly coming in this semester. Um, but a lot of my students mentioned that um, right, reading and, and watching, uh, one student said, for some reason, my brain, when reading or watching things from the ancient world, thinks that it is all fake, like it is hard for me to grasp that this actually happened. So seeing the replicas has really helped me gain a sense of realism, I guess, end quote. Um, it's, it's and, such a perfect quote, yeah. yeah. So a few other students say it helps them contextualize um, the travels of the different of the ancient world, bringing up some different details, how difficult and dangerous the ancient world could be. Um, in both my uh, classical mythology and my heroic quest class, I talk about Xenia, um, this importance of ancient Greek hospitality because Greeks are spreading around the Mediterranean, they're traveling, and it's dangerous if you don't have this social construct where you go to someone's house as a guest and there are certain rules mm. um, and uh, protocols for societal interaction for a host and guest. And if, and a lot of the ancient Greek texts talk about what happens if you break that societal rule. So what if you steal something from your host or what if um, the host threatens your life or doesn't follow the protocol, it deteriorates, it makes it a very uh, dangerous place for you to be traveling. Um, and so we talk a lot about that as well. So that's cool. It's kind of feel that coming to alive in their uh, experience of the course and the text. I certainly empathize with the student who said, for some reason, my brain when reading or watching these things has a hard time imagining that it could possibly be real because it's, I mean, it's hard enough. I imagine a person who's never traveled, uh, we, it's hard to imagine what daily life is like for someone, for a contemporary, you know, um, if they live in any way differently than, or, you know, eat different food. And so being not only in a different ge ge geographical place, but separated by thousands of years, it's 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 mind-boggling uh and so yeah just being like i can understand second guessing people like are you are you are you telling me the truth right now like they really did that uh <laughs> right right and when we translate things in latin class sometimes it's hard to envision something and yeah you know oh they're describing the shield but how did it actually feel or or what were maybe the obstacles that someone faced and and after we read uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, I actually um, talked to them about this, right? Kind of going off of what you just said, that if I can feel some emotion or sympathy, empathy, uh, some sort of connection moved by either Gilgamesh or the story, right? Gilgamesh and I are separated by gender, by thousands of years. He, you know, in the Middle East, I'm over in the New World, America. And if I can have a connection that not only, you know, transcends, those things, it makes me feel like it's so, it must be so much easier to find an interhuman connection with someone else that maybe comes from a different background than me yeah. or someone else from a different country or, or something, different opinions um, in modern day because we don't have, you know, 3,000 years separating us. So I think it definitely helps to, to read these, to see these objects and think, okay, you know, someone is using this bowl just like I use my cereal bowl every day or, or something. What do these objects, big and small, mean to them? 
um, also it kind of makes it easier to think about, okay, what, what might be someone else's experience putting myself into the shoes of a contemporary um, that we might not always think of as, as easy to do, but then you're like, oh, Gilgamesh, I can do it with him. So yeah. <laughs> I should be able to do it with many other people. Yeah. It's yeah. Immersing yourself in a story like that shows that it's, if in some ways it feels uh, mod- modern because of the hu- human experience it has as far as of emotions. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, when, when Gilgamesh loses his friend Enkidu, you know, yeah. no spoilers, uh, <laughs> he cries. and he cries, he's sad, you know, and similarly, he's proud of his city, you know, great walled Ur- Uruk in the same way that we're mm-hmm. proud of our cities and stuff. And so it's, it's relatable, even though he's fighting monsters and places. Now, right. <laughs> uh, the Aeneid, written by Virgil, who was a, a Roman poet, did, was he writing in Latin? Yes. Because uh, that's one of the ones that I, I, haven't, I haven't read yet, but it sounds like I need to. <laughs> it's good. I mean, uh, my favorite uh, book in the Aeneid is when he goes to the underworld. Um, and actually, Virgil's rendition of the underworld is actually really influential in Dante's Inferno. And the circles of hell, which now that I'm reading the Sandman with my heroic quest class right now, uh, Neil Gaiman uses that kind of circles of hell uh, stuff as well, kind of coming off of, of Virgil. But yeah, Aeneas is, uh, Virgil is very, um, he can be a little difficult and challenging to read in the original Latin sometimes because he is so literary and he's pulling so many references. So he's like, ah, oh, here's a little bit from the Odyssey, here's a bit from the Aeneid. Uh, here's some contemporary stuff, here's some histo- uh, historical context, right? He throws um, uh, Octavian Augustus in there as well, Julius Caesar. So he's throwing everything in and making all of these references. And it is quite uh, quite an epic piece of, of poetry. So I would recommend it. But yeah, my favorite part is book six, uh, Journey to the Underworld. <laughs> One question I wanted to ask was about your um, choice of where to get these items. Oh yeah, okay. Um, I, I noticed that some of them are coming from Etsy. Uh, yeah, a lot. As well, as well as other places. How did you find the things that you're looking for? And if you found them in multiple places, how did you make your decisions? Um, well, you know, I started looking a lot at museum replica or museum uh, websites and a lot of them, are beautifully renditioned, but they're also rather expensive too. Um, but I start and, and they, you know, they're great for getting things like a replica piece of a real piece of pottery, like this uh, Keelix, this wine uh, glass that depicts uh, Dionysus and the dolphin. So I picked this one because it's great for my mythology class. It depicts uh, a mythological story about Dionysus, but then also has real use as being a wine cup <laughs> um, for an ancient symposium. <laughs> but other things like um, the loom, for instance, or or other items that represent maybe not the typical uh, items that you would find in a museum, um, maybe more hands-on stuff like the molds or, or other aspects of uh, different levels of society. Etsy, I found to be very helpful and useful. There are a lot of people who are, seem to be really interested in recreating um, some of these things or creating things in similar styles. And I think this is also a great opportunity to talk about 
Etsy and modern day artists and artisans as well, because Ooh, as yeah. I'm, you know, buying some of these things, it's a continual, um, it's a way that we can see how modern artists are pulling from ancient sources. And we also get to be part of that modern trade, just kind of like the ancient world was, right? This, I mean, this, I imported this replica item from Etsy via Greece, right? We're supporting local small businesses or, or just local craftsmen, people who are interested in some of these old techniques. Um, the loom is technically not a official replica, right? Because the ancient Greek loom, very big, very massive, but it's some, uh, you know, more, some artists who is recreating that, um, that technique, that, that way of doing that. So I think it's, it's kind of cool to use Etsy in that way and see, oh, hey, we're continuing this trade connection um, we're supporting other artists, uh, just like the ancient world does when they're, you know, using these different things and kind of creating our own own museum in that respect too. <laughs> I love that. So it's like a, a conscientious uh, continuity of tradition, you know, mm -hmm. crafting tradition. That's great. Well, one of the questions that's been on my mind that I've got to ask, <laughs> talking to to an expert, and I'm sure this is a question that's on everyone's mind. Who would win in a fight? Okay. <laughs> Gilgamesh or Beowulf? Now, Beowulf, okay. we haven't talked about much yet. Is it any airtime in the heroic uh, quest? Um, I have not taught him this semester, but I have taught him in the past. And I know other professors um, teach his epic in them as well. It was so hard to pick. <laughs> um, you can only do so much in each semester. But yes. yeah, I thought about this because, you know, Beowulf, he he can take people, you know, he takes Grendel down with his bare hands. He is as strong as I think 12 men or something like that. I think I forget what the epic says. And, you know, he's, you know, braving dragons and he does a lot of stuff uh, without a lot of help from other people. So in that respect, he seems pretty, pretty good on that account. But I think I have to go with Gilgamesh because he is two thirds immortal okay. <laughs> um, the ancestry yep, he has that ancestry he does go uh, on a search for immortality um so he doesn't succeed in getting it but he does uh remember that and i think even he is willing to work on a team with hmm. with inkadu mm -hmm. um you know and he works with his friend in that respect so i might i might give it to gilgamesh even though i think if the two of them were to um, be, who would be a better public uh, or public leader? I'd probably go with Beowulf. He seems to, you know, <laughs> lead the Hall of the Danes a little bit better. Gilgamesh's city, while it does well, he's not. He's like, ah, oh, I need to go on another adventure. He just like <laughs> leaves them, yeah. So that's probably my two cents. <laughs> but so, so the fight, the fight goes to to Gil to Gilgamesh. I would say, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Let me go another step. Gilgamesh, yeah. and this may be an easy one. I don't know. Gilgamesh to uh, Odysseus from the Odyssey. Ooh. Um, I think mm, Gilgamesh is probably stronger than Odysseus, but Odysseus is so wily He's crafty. and clever. If he was able to have time to think about it, I think he could outwit Gilgamesh. Interesting. For sure. Yeah. I would say that if, if they were given like tools or a setup, I think Odysseus could trick him. <laughs> You would somehow figure out how to convince Gilgamesh to do something ridiculous yes. or something. Brain over brain over bronze. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, we could probably multiply a, a bracket yeah. <laughs> forever, um, and it involve a lot of uh, heroes and characters I've never never heard of yet. But thank you for sharing your wisdom with me on that. <laughs> that concludes this episode of Our Cold Conversations. Please subscribe to Our Cold Conversations wherever you get your podcasts, and share the show on social media. You can follow the college on Facebook at msu.arcole and on Twitter at msu underscore arcole. And if you have an idea for Arcole Conversations, you can get in touch with me at jhoward at missouristate.edu. Thanks for listening.